Welcome to the Sourdough Podcast. We are your hosts, Jay and Ashley. We're coming to you from our log cabin studio, formerly known as our living room, on our farm here in western Montana. Well, it's been a while. Sure has. Yeah. It's spring is is definitely one of the busiest seasons on the farm, especially late spring when we start harvesting a ton of food and all at the same time we're also seeding for summer crops and also fall crops all at the same time weeds are at their uh fastest stages of growth and are starting to produce seeds which we don't want so we've been doing a lot of weeding and trying to reduce that seed count uh in our soils and it's been really difficult for us to to make some time here to just sit down next to each other and and have a conversation about what we love to do so we are here finally sitting down, even though there's some rain stores develop, developing in our in our background, so we'll be keeping an eye on those. It's been actually almost, I think tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the hail on the farm. Yeah, somewhere around that. I think it was maybe maybe like a week from now. Um, I, I recall it was like a week or so after your birthday, which was just a couple days ago. Um but yeah, so there's always that little little piece in the back of our minds, uh, paying close attention to the weather and reliving reliving last year's experiences on the farm. And um, I guess fortunate for us, the weather does vary so much year to year. And so far this year, we have had a overall pretty good spring i would say so <laughs> knock on wood um the winds have been mild for the most part i think it was two years ago our spring winds were so terrible we almost we had to delay transplanting crops um quite a bit yeah then last year between the super hot heat we had early season followed by the hail and whatever else it mm. was uh, a hard spring so yeah yeah yeah, this time this time of year for the weather. I mean, we're talking about weather. It's like everyone, everybody talks about the weather, but it's just so important for farmers. And and if you don't, you really should pay more attention to it. Um, but we, you know, I currently have the the Doppler right now, just uh, watching these storm cells head northwest over our area. But all at the same time, we have risk of hail, excessive ra- excessive rain. There's even still risk of frost mm-hmm. and also intense heat. You know, in early May we had. 90 plus degrees and then it went all the way down to high 50s and fortunately we haven't had a frost actually it's been kind of strange but we haven't had a frost since late april yeah yeah that is strange yeah that's that's uh not not normal for the patterns that we've seen i'm thinking back to even i think it was in 2020 or this may no maybe summer of 2021 i remember mid-june it got so cold that we built a fire in the cabin yep. <laughs> um, for warmth because I think it, it I'm sure we it got a frost. Freezing. Yeah. Yeah. Or near freezing. Um, yeah. So today we're going to dive into conversation around uh, local produce, like what's growing right now, uh, how we're able to grow certain crops and varieties at this time of the year. And we'll talk a little bit about the life cycles of other crops that a lot of customers have been asking us for that are just very far from yet being ready to harvest. Definitely, yeah. Um, what should we get started on? Uh, well, why don't we start with where we're at right now? So currently on the farm, we have um, already started planting out some of our summer and fall 
crops. Yep. Uh, the Some of the fall crops being our winter squash. So those will be ones that take us right into winter storage crops, which is crazy to think because we're only at June, the start of June. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when would those seeds have been started? Well, you know, so all squashes really, they don't need a ton of time in the, in the greenhouse or the, the nursery. So we, we started those in early May. Um, and we planted, actually, we planted those winter squash out May 25th. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So they've been in the ground for a couple of weeks now and I've actually at least doubled in size. So it's really nice to see that early, early growth on those guys. Cause you know, if you, if you plant just two weeks later, you might get 30% less crop. Yeah. Um, in these type of areas because you know even though some of those vines can grow for a very long time in areas where you don't have frost till mid to late october or even november mm-hmm. here we have frost come sometimes even august 30th yeah or yeah. usually early september and uh while winter squash aren't frost uh tolerant by any means um really all cucurbits are not frost tolerant uh at least the ones that we grow and so, uh, yeah, winter squash, you know, mm-hmm. just two weeks earlier, you get quite a big harvest. So it's, yeah. I'm really excited to get those in earlier. Yeah. And when will those be ready to harvest? Like when do you anticipate you'll start to get your first yield from those, um, from winter, winter squash? Uh, some of them that we're growing, I think are about 90 days to maturity and those are probably the earliest ones. So some of them are up to 120 days to maturity. And so that would be four months from May 25th, so June, July, so mid to late September. Okay, awesome. And yeah. so the date to maturity that you mentioned, is that date from the day that you plant the seed or once you have your little seedling or start? Once you transplant. Once you transplant. So well, yeah, it's a good question. So it really actually depends on the crop. So most some crops are just required to to direct seed, meaning that you seed them directly into the field mm-hmm. and that they aren't growing in a nursery before transplanting out. And then some, you most people prefer transplanting them out. And so, you know, things like carrots and parsnips and I'm trying to think what else would be. Um, I mean, some people direct seed beet, uh, even though we don't, but generally those are going to be uh, days of maturity from direct seeding right into okay. the field. But for all the other things that you transplant, it'll actually be days to maturity is from transplant. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that information on any reputable seed dealer's website mm-hmm. uh, as far as days to maturity. And, and they'll let you know if that's a transplanted crop or from a direct seed. Awesome. And a lot of the time, too, I think on the if you're buying the small packs of seeds, they typically have a fair bit of information right on the back in yeah. terms of depth to plant, if you should start them indoors or direct seed mm-hmm. um and then spacing for when you do plant them outside yeah. and kind of their tolerance for cold mm-hmm. or lack of yeah yeah on that note actually so a lot of squash and and cucumbers with a long enough um frost-free season it's actually preferable to direct seed those um cucurbit uh roots have a bit more sensitivity to transplanting you have to be quite careful mm-hmm. with them um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess that was my point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so what else is in the works right now in terms of things that we're planning for the late summer and fall hmm. harvest? It's yeah, it's just, it's still crazy to think that we need to be starting on all these things right now in order to make sure that we have the crops we need for fall mm-hmm. and our storage crops that'll take us into winter. Yeah. 
so we're we're organizing um, uh, all of our brassicas, which are your 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 kale, your cabbage, your cauliflower, all that. Um, within the next couple of weeks, we're going to be seeding them in our greenhouse in the nursery uh, to transplant out in uh, basically mid July is really the latest we want to put those out. And some of those cabbages, once you transplant them, they can take 90 days, so 100 days to mm-hmm. really reach their full potential. And that'll bring us right into early October when we harvest those out. And then carrots can actually, depending on the variety, you know, main season storage carrots are generally going to be, be between 75 to even say 95 days to maturity from your direct seeding date. And so basically by mid July, we'll basically have seeded. I said basically twice. Mm-hmm. We will have seeded all of our storage crops. Right. Yeah. And so at what point in the farm season do you find the seeding really slows down or comes to a halt? Because we definitely aren't seeding right up until the end of our season. Like we're harvesting mm-hmm. through November mm-hmm. often. But when does that seeding come to a close typically? I would say generally by the early September in mm-hmm. this region, if you're direct seeding greens into your into your greenhouses but you know as far as direct seeding outside you might luck out and and get a crop out of it but you also might get a hard frost come late september early october and Mm -hmm. um, you might even get that crop so generally it really starts to slow down or just completely comes to a halt by by early september yeah and then what about for farms that have multiple greenhouses or high tunnels heated or not Mm -hmm. let's go with not heated is there a greater window for them to continue seeding later into the season because they have that coverage? Slightly, but not by much. And it really depends on on your latitude in in this world. Because once you reach below 10 hours of sunlight per day, which is when you're entering into the Persephone period, and yes, that does relate to the the Greek goddess who thought it'd be wise to go hang out with Haiti. Uh, Once you reach below that 10-hour mark, uh, crops really sort of slow down their growth growth rate and basically enter a, a dormancy where they just stop. They, they'll grow a little bit, but once you reach below that 10 hours. So for us, I think that's right around November 2nd or okay. November 1st. Um, depends on, again, where your latitude is. Some people do, will just never reach that Persephone period, more towards the equator. Yeah. But yeah, it does vary depending on your latitude primarily. Okay. Yeah. And so for farms that are growing through the winter, like we have some awesome local farms that are able to offer a winter CSA vegetable share program. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll hopefully get some of them on here to talk to them in person. But uh, what does that look like for them to have food available all winter when you do reach that point where you're no longer able to seed Mm -hmm. and have those seeds grow into a successful crop? Well, you hopefully they have all their seeds in already, uh, certainly before the Persephone period. Sometimes they'll seed um, in October in order to get a crop actually the following spring even. So they'll they'll seed, they'll germinate, but they'll stay really quite small, literally all winter long. And then once that Persephone period ends in, in around February, those will start growing for a March early March harvest mm-hmm. or even sometimes even a late February harvest, depending on when you seeded that before the Persephone period okay. begins. So it's cool. actually... Qu- quite tricky i've heard to um time those properly for that spring harvest it's actually quite a, a feat in of itself to to get succession harvest in early spring like that or even mm. late winter so 
you know, kudos to everybody who can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We like to uh, keep in mind that we have the farm shutting down for the winter to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so I'm glad someone out there is uh, continuing to harvest food for yeah. the winter seasons. But, you know, I think another answer to that question, part of the answer to that question is um, your crops really want to reach maturity as soon as you enter into that period because you actually might harvest two months later, but that crop won't get any bigger. So it will look like you have a, a full greenhouse and mm-hmm. that will last them for, for potentially months on end until they completely harvest out that greenhouse. And it's, it's, it's kind of a misnomer. It's not really winter growing. It's more like just winter harvesting. Right. Cause they've already been seeded ahead of time. Yeah. And so you're basically, you have these crops there that you get to continue to reap the benefit of. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're keeping them safe and warm and in the right sort of conditions so that they don't die. Yeah. Yep. And hopefully voles aren't eating it away and yeah. you don't get an insane amount of aphids because aphids love that, yeah. that cold season. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Um, well, I think, uh, I think listeners would find some intrigue in hearing a little bit about the life cycles of some of the alliums that we grow. Uh, one being onions. <laughs> We've had a lot of people asking us for onions, not green onions, not spring onions, but like straight up big, big old onions, the mm-hmm. ones that are cured and store for the winter. Um, and people have been coming in asking like, when are the onions going to be in? When are you harvesting onions? And so I thought that it would be, this would be a great opportunity to provide a little bit of education about what the life cycle looks like of the mm-hmm. onion, garlic, leek, because these are really interesting Crops. Crops. I was looking for the best <laughs> word. What do we call these things? Plants. Uh, the plants. Um, because they have very long life cycles. Mm. And that in itself makes it hard for them to be grown like greens, for example, where we can pretty much be planting greens all season long. Mm-hmm. Uh, garlic in particular has a very specific schedule that it wants to be on. And I'll let you dive into some of those details, but basically the garlic needs to be planted in fall. The previous for your, year. Yeah, of the yeah. previous year so that you can harvest it the following summer. Yep. And so we typically plant our garlic around October 15th, yep. I think. We're Generally. usually pretty good getting around that. And so we um, save our garlic from save some of our garlic from our harvest each summer and split all the cloves apart once they <laughs> have uh, I guess we let them cure first oh yeah and split them apart and that's what we use to replant to continue to grow and expand our garlic production mm-hmm. but can you go over a little bit like what that date to maturity is for garlic and maybe dive a little bit more into that whole life cycle process because it's it's I guess not a year but October through August that we're waiting for that crop to be ready like that like that's the the cycle right there yeah uh yeah usually like late July July yeah usually late July because they're just starting to escape right now and then they generally have like six to six to seven maybe eight weeks left until they're ready to to harvest so that brings us to late July Mm -hmm. um but you know garlic are actually you know technically I think they're a perennial plant we just kind of harvest them in the way that is best for agriculture and, and getting maximal yield. Um, and so we pull them apart. We take them out, we cure them, we pull them apart, and then 
replant all of those little cloves or actually not little because you want the biggest, Mm -hmm. best cloves. And that's what seed garlic or what differentiates seed garlic from just eating garlic is that uh, farmers actually take all of the biggest cloves and keep them for themselves to plant the following year. And you want to do that to maintain the size of your garlic. But yeah, these things are perennial. And if you just let garlic go, um, they'll just keep on basically propagating out underneath. So one clove will then produce a bulb. And then that bulb will have each of those cloves on that bulb will produce then another bulb. And pretty soon you could have an entire field just stuffed with garlic. Mm-hmm. That's not really great for um, for cropping for as a, as a business, but they I'm sure they can grow just as a perennial wild or yeah. just in your garden. Right. You know, if you don't care about the size, yeah, that'd be fine. Um, wait, was that your question? Yeah. 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 Just the talking about the life cycle of the garlic. Yeah. Well, it takes about 240 days, I think, is for the garlic from October 15th to, to mid to late July. I think that's around 240 days. So, you know, we're we're keeping eyes on this plant for the better part of two thirds of a year mm-hmm. um, in order to then reap the benefits. And that's probably one of the reasons why garlic is actually a high dollar crop. Is because yeah, it takes up a lot of real estate. <laughs> a lot of real estate, a lot of time. Yeah. We like to look at our crops as what is it giving? We like to look at our crops as in the way like we're leasing the rows out to yeah, them. They're the tenants of our field. <laughs> exactly. And if we're only getting $50 per row per month, then it's not going to be a really high dollar crop. And it might actually for a small farm not not be economical to be growing these really long term perennial hard to grow things. Um and then we have like spinach, which can like harvest $500 per month out of that one row. So it's a big difference. And, and you got to choose wisely what you grow in that in that early time or, you know, when you're starting a farm, mm-hmm. especially a smaller one to, to make sure that's economical. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that's a good segue into talking about leeks because leeks are another uh, tenant that take up a lot of space for a long period of time and We've had some difficulties growing them. Last year, our crop was okay, okay, but having just an okay crop when you're when you have a small market garden like us is really not ideal because they take around what 180, 190 mm-hmm. days. Yeah, from from, <laughs> from, from seed. Yeah, yeah. So we start our leeks from seed as well in the nursery, and they're in there a while until we transplant them out, uh, which is always a process. mission, <laughs> a process in itself. Um, yeah, because if you seeded just if you direct seeded leeks outside, um, you're not going to get that long white shank that you mm-hmm. see in the grocery stores that yeah. everybody wants. You're going to get like the tiny littlest. <laughs> yeah, they look like a. They would look more like a green onion. Yeah, and it would be very. It would probably wouldn't be very palatable. Palatable mm-hmm. uh, if you grew it like that. So how how most farmers do it is so we start the seed in the greenhouse and then you know they can stay in there sometimes like 70 days um and we're trying to get pencil thick um leeks before planting before planting them out yeah that are at least 12 inches tall Mm -hmm. you know ours are close right now i don't even know if we're gonna plant them when do we start those uh let's see um i gotta find it yeah because those 
not only do they take up real estate in the field, but the trays and trays and trays full of them in the nursery take up space for a long time too, Mm -hmm. because like Jay said, they are in there. We're waiting for them to get to a particular size. It's not necessarily just about a period of time because if they're growing slow, because we're not getting a lot of sun, uh, they're going to end up being in the nursery space a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Uh, March 7th. March 7th. Okay. And we'll, we would start harvesting them. Excuse me. We'd start harvesting them in early September. Okay. So they've already been in our nursery for three months yep. today. Today. Uh, they're not quite ready to plant out yet. They're not looking the they best, are. to be honest. They're, they're, they're ready. They're okay. <laughs> I'm just, I don't even know if I want to plant them. The, the dilemma of small farms. We're trying to decide if it's worth giving up that real estate to the leeks. <laughs> um, that. They're not good at making payments yeah, yeah they're really not no, so i'm just gonna i'm erring on the side of not yeah not doing that um but regardless it is uh it again a leak is another another one that's really fascinating because i think a lot of people don't realize how long it takes to get to that final product that you buy in the store at your local farmer's market and when you really think about the amount of time it takes, those things should be worth like $20 a pound, but mm-hmm. no one wants to pay that. <laughs> but if you calculate it based on the amount of time it takes up space in your nursery, the time it takes to transplant those by hand, if you're on a small scale farm like we are, and then the time to harvest them, process them, take them where you're going to sell them and actually sell them, it's half a year of your time. Yeah. <laughs> and only then you get paid. Yeah. After mm-hmm. all of that work, right? Yeah. So it's not, you know, you don't get investment money on the front end right. for those things. And, yeah. you know, I, I feel like it would probably t- take less time to build a car. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Especially if you have machines doing it for you. Yeah, right. Uh, and so I guess the last one, what did we miss in this category? So onions, onions, why we don't have onions right now. Yeah. So uh, some local farms may still be selling onions. Mm-hmm. They would likely be storage onions from last fall's harvest the ones that have been cured and stored at the appropriate temperature to keep them from going moldy or trying to grow again this spring which is near freezing yeah Mm -hmm. and uh so our onions for uh, an example of the life cycle and timeline we start our onions by seed or from seed in march 7th march 7th also march 7th and those are then transplanted out to our fields. Well, we use paper pot transplanters for those because it, oh, I mean, it made it so much quicker. I mm-hmm. Instead of a full day of seeding, it took me an hour yeah. or of transplanting. But when did we transplant those? So the paper pot transplanter is a very valuable tool for, I mean, for small to mid-scale farms. Mm-hmm. I think I, I know some larger farms around here even use the paper pot transplanter. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it really helps with efficiency. Good spacing. Good spacing. Consistent depth too, because mm-hmm. you don't want to plant on the uh, storage onions too late mm-hmm. or too deep rather. Yeah, yeah. Because the bulb will, if that soil is too tight, that bulb will, won't grow properly yeah. basically. And then we transplanted them May 3rd this year. Okay. Yep. Which was a little bit late, but it was fine. Yeah. And so, the, so we had our early March seeding in the greenhouse and paper pot transplanters Mm -hmm. then we transplanted them out early may Mm -hmm. and when approximately will those be ready for harvest uh august 
August and September. Yeah. Um, depends on the variety. I'm just looking at our varieties here. So we're looking at least at a four and a half to five month window. Yeah. And so for our customers, they can expect to start buying mm-hmm. onions local through our onions. store, local onions, uh, or at the farmer's market by... Well, then we have to cure them. Yeah. So by September. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you can sell fresh onion, right? Yeah. The consumer just needs to be aware that it hasn't been cured. Meaning, it has to be refrigerated. Yeah. Yeah. Meaning it's Won't still, it's like fresher, I guess, in a sense. Yeah. The, the leaves are still green. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so to cure an onion, to cure garlic, can you explain that process? Yeah. What does that mean to cure? Because when I think about the word cure, I'm thinking about like curing meats. Yeah. No, you don't put nitrates on it or nitrites. Mm-hmm. Um, no, all you need is just uh, lower humidity or not too high of humidity and time um, and keep them out of sunlight generally or else they'll develop a green skin, uh, probably just from the UV damage or whatever they're doing. Um, but yeah, so you, we, what we do when the, the onions are basically a biennial, right? So, you know, what biennials do is they produce, they store carbohydrates in food for the, for the winter and the next spring into their storage sinks for an onion that's basically like the stem but for a carrot and a beet it's the root and so these are biennial crops and so what would happen is that bulb basically or that root would last the winter basically not growing it would actually pull it would actually like basically dry out its leaves and wait all winter long until the next spring when then it will regrow Mm -hmm. out of its apical meristem which is right in the center of the onion. When you cut it, you can see it. It'll regrow that, and that's when they'll start to produce flowers. And so that's the biennial, two years. And the first year is to produce enough food to make it to the next spring, and next spring is all about reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, but for so for curing crops, we're trying to like kind of basically do the same thing. And so we pull the crop, or but even before we pull the crops in the field, for onions especially, when they're getting ready, you'll start to see kind of their stems or leaves kind of near the base of the onion start to get bendy, if you will. And and what we'll do is we'll go along the entire field and just basically push all of the leaves over. Mm-hmm. And that just signals to the onion like, okay, I am done. I am pulling all of the nutrition and all that energy that I put into growing leaves back into the bulb. And so then that, that bulb will get bigger while pulling all those nu- nutrients back and then Basically, about a week later, we'll pull all of those onions right out of the field, chop a bit of their leaves off, and then hang them upside down in racks to fully let all of the those leaves just basically completely dry out to where mm-hmm. there's literally no moisture. You can squeeze those leaves and no moisture will come out. And that's when you know they're ready. And so then will you snip the rest of the leaves off, let them dry out again on that, that tip, mm-hmm. and then... You put them into whatever totes you want and store them at 33 degrees Celsius at 90, I think it's 98% humidity. Yeah. And when you say they're ready, you mean that they are cured enough to a point that they will store safely for the winter season. Exactly. And if if farmers don't do that, they'll get a disgusting soup of Mm -hmm. onions that have uncured onions will just spoil a bunch of the, all the other onions around it and yeah you know it, you got to make sure that you you properly cure certainly onions and, yeah. and definitely garlic too absolutely and i think even some of the onions that we brought in from through the uh co-op this winter 
my guess was that they were not cured quite long enough because we had them for a very short time stored in the correct conditions. And this was early winter, so they yep. hadn't been stored too long. Uh, but they very quickly went mushy. And when we cut it open, you could see green growth right mm. in the middle. Yeah. So I would say that's an indicator that they weren't fully cured. Either not fully cur- cured or, or uh, improperly stored mm-hmm. at the, their holding facility. Yeah, yeah that um, could be. It could also be a, la- a lack of nutrition too, mm. right? So like if you, um, yeah, if you, I think it's, I think it's boron, but if you don't properly have right nutritional levels in those crops, they won't store well. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, I think, um, so we've talked a little bit about these long growing crops, the ones that take up time, take up real estate, aren't very good tenants because they don't pay us on the front end. (laughs) Um, What are some of the crops that we have growing on the farm right now that are actually quite quick and as a small scale farm are good ones to bring us early season income? Yeah, Uh, it's green season here primarily um and really for most of spring uh, outside of the storage crops from the previous year it's greens and then quick growing roots so mm-hmm. we have uh a few like a few different kinds of radishes but then we for turnips we pretty much exclusively grow hawkeye or salad turnips is their name and uh, those take like 38 days and they're they're a really great money maker you know they base with a paper pot transplanter they stay there in the ground in that root or uh, that row for 28 days. Yeah. And so they're so a great, quick. they're a great high dollar crop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but greens, you know, we have lettuce heads now that we're harvesting like romaines and butters and everything like that. We also still do lettuce mixes that have been cropping since late March. Yeah. Um, spinach is nearing the end of its spring season. Spinach is another one of those crops that, um, I don't know if it's technically a biennial or not, but they certainly put out their seed um, in the in the late spring. And everybody thinks it's just heat that actually uh, causes spinach to quote unquote bolt, which means just to produce seed. Um, but it also actually has to do with daylight integral and the amount mm. of daylight that's in um, or that's available during the day. Right. Um, we're growing mustards, wide variety of mustards. So we've been harvesting mizuna and sprouting broccoli and pak choy and what else we've been harvesting green onion now we do have green onion mm-hmm. yeah yeah green onion radish i don't know if you said radish but just mm-hmm. the classic red radish those yep. go grow great uh early spring yeah they don't mind the cooler temps that we still get in the evenings they taste better they taste better for sure yep. yeah um yeah i guess that's those are kind of our main spring crops and then brassicas like kale yeah yeah absolutely those are all about ready to be harvested now too which is great uh and so all for all of those would you say that the seeding time for those i guess those are a variety of direct seeding such as with the radish we use Mm -hmm. the jang seeder to direct seed those into our fields uh, but then the hot rice salad turnips, those are paper pot yep. transplanted. So w- for those ones, when about did you start those in the nursery? Uh, we're on our, let's see, one, two. We're on our, we just finished our fourth succession of hot rye. So that's amazing. You know, yeah, four different rows. And so we've been harvesting those since uh, mid-April. So mm-hmm. we had one in our very early greenhouse. Wait, fifth succession. 
we had one in our second greenhouse. Then we had had two outside already, and we just no, yeah, fourth. Okay, yeah, yeah. awesome. And I guess because those grow so quickly, they're not actually in the nursery for all that long. Twelve days. Yeah, twelve days. Then they're in the field, and then ready in approximately twenty days after that. Eh, twenty-eight. Okay. Yeah, probably twenty now. Yeah. But yeah. early awesome. season, yeah, and for early season crops, you have to account for the lack of, or the. Um, the uh, smaller daylight integral. Mm-hmm, that and, makes sense. And so like around March March 20th to, to early May, you have 12 to 13 hours of sunlight a day. And so they're just going to grow a little bit slower. So when you're like planning for seeding and doing successions, you know, early season and late season, you have to account for that. So, you know, we generally, we kind of put them into blocks. Like if it's between, you know, a month after the equinox, all the way up to a solstice, it's ten, generally going to be like a week extra. And then before that, it's going to be at least two weeks extra that you have to account for during for your seeding plan okay. to get good successions. Because you don't all of a sudden want three three crops all at once maturing at the same time. You'd be like, well, where did my successions go? Because right. they're all ready. Yeah. So yeah. you got to really account for that. And then all of a sudden you have a lot of food to harvest all at once, but nothing to harvest after that. Exactly. <laughs> And so for the at-home gardener, speaking specifically about our region here in the Bitterroot mm-hmm. Valley and what we have seen in the wetter, wetter, mm-hmm. <laughs> weather patterns, when would you say is a pretty safe time for people to start planting outdoors in their garden if they don't have a, a small greenhouse to utilize as a nursery? Well, so we started seeding out into our field with early April, like the first week of April. And it depends on when the, the ground actually thaws and when it's not literally like 15 or 18 degrees outside. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it really depends. But generally, it's going to be early April. You know, we've planted as early as April 1st out in the field. And sometimes we had to wait until April 15th. Even. Yeah. So it really depends. But just watch the weather. Yeah. And so what are the indicators in the soil if someone wants to have a better understanding and idea at home of what to look for for their signs of like, okay, the soil's ready, aside from watching the weather? Well, it should be thawed. Thawed. So you want it to be workable. You shouldn't feel down into it and feel a uh, hard layer of frozen frozen ground. Yeah. Yeah. Because actually, generally, the the ground that thaws first is actually the top layers of the mm-hmm. soil and you actually will still get a, a like a frozen mass two inches beneath yeah. beneath the thir- beneath the surface <laughs> <laughs> tongue twisters <laughs> over <laughs> here uh and then another thing that people can do it's a very inexpensive investment we actually have a thermometer that mm-hmm. we stick out in the field so we can kind of monitor what's happening with the soil temperatures as the weather begins to change yeah and it's fun to watch too it's interesting to see how slow it can be to really start to warm up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then once it reaches that point where it really is thawed and it's drying and is no longer super saturated from the winter snowpack on top, Mm -hmm. uh, it can, it can spike up in temperature pretty quickly and be ready for some direct seeding. Yeah. Certainly depends on the aspect of Mm -hmm. your, of your field. So an aspect just basically means where does the slope orient to? So, if I'm sloped to the south, that soil is going to thaw m- like much, much quicker than anything on the north. And it could be as much as three weeks difference between thawing on those both sides of that, that hill. So, um, But another good indicator, though, is uh, actually before I say that one. So soil temperature is really important for germination. 
And there's some crops out there that actually really prefer to germinate in cold soils. Um, but regardless of that, they still take a long time to germinate in cold soils. Mm -hmm. So even though lettuce really likes to germinate between like 50 and 60 degrees, if it's at 45 degrees, it could take another week or even yeah. two weeks longer. So, so, so be patient if you do plant out yeah. direct seeds early. Yeah. And that, and you know, when you direct seed out when it's really cold soils, it, you do run risk of rotting, especially with things like peas. Mm -hmm. And it can be a real challenge sometimes to get peas from, to germinate probably properly, really early season, mm -hmm. direct seeding into the field. So just watch out for soil temperature. That's really a great way to monitor. Yeah. Monitor that. Um, just trying to think of what I was going to say. Another, another indicator for determining when your oh, soil's ready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if weed seeds are germinating, yeah. <laughs> it's probably okay. Yeah. Generally speaking, you know, some of those weed seeds do actually, those plants actually overwinter in the ground. They germinate in the fall and then grow early season springtime. But, you know, if you're starting to see uh, weeds like, um, uh, like lamb's quarter or like, you know, I think it's called like pig's ear or I'm trying to think of any other weeds that would be a good indicator early season. Those are, those are pretty good. Mm -hmm. I mean, lamb's quarter is a really good indication because yeah. that's a spinach or it's, yeah. it's related to spinach. It's in the ketopod family. And so, um, that'd be a really good indication. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in thinking about these early season attempts at planting and growing, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what we can do both as small farms, medium scale farms and um, for at home gardeners as well. What can people do to get an earlier harvest in spring? Yeah. Well, you know, as soon as Agrabon, like insulated fleece cover mm -hmm. is a really, really great way to not only have an, an earlier start to your season, but also harvest earlier um, because that insulated fleece cover, even though it's occluding some light from the sun in those early seasons, it the soil temperature is really what matters to the, the, the growth rate, of course, sunlight, but certainly soil temperature is a significant factor when it comes to the growth rate of plants. When, when, when the, the soil is below 60 degrees Fahrenheit, there's a lot less nitrogen, um, basically solubilization that's happening. And so the bacteria, you know, they have metabolisms and their metabolisms are dictated um, based upon soil temperature. So the hotter the, the soil, the quicker they're going to be producing byproducts that your plants absorb. So if that soil temperature is well below 60 degrees, your plants are going to be growing really slowly. So having that insulated fleece over it raises that soil temperature, holds that heat under and close to your plants and then also increases or raises the temperature of that soil. And that's, that is really vital to get an earlier harvest out um, yeah. in early season. That makes sense. And we use that practice ourselves yeah. out in the field. It's not only good to keep the more sensitive plants, um, keep the more sensitive plants protected, but it can also help to protect them from wind. So right now on really windy days, we've actually been even covering our corn mm -hmm. just to help give it a little extra protection so that it can uh, grow a little stronger without getting blown over. I mm -hmm. mean, they're still pretty small right now. But they're rooting down quick. They're yeah. bulking up. It's, it's nice. Mm -hmm. um, and then so other options for earlier 
harvests, of course, having greenhouses or yep. high tunnels or low tunnels, whatever it is, and any sort of coverage over the soil is going to provide some benefit. Um, so what we have here at the farm, we have two greenhouses, one that is not heated and one that is heated with a propane heater <laughs> uh, and we're actually not using the heater anymore at this point in the season but it was really beneficial to us early season because we don't have a specific nursery so that greenhouse was able to act as our nursery so we'd have a small zone we'd tarp off turn the heater we would keep it at what like 36 like just about freezing yeah for that early season for the early yeah, season like 40 degrees around 40 and so that gave us a space that we could get some seeds started indoors. Yeah. And so people can use that same sort of method, a warm place, um, such as a shelf in your bedroom with some grow lights on it yep. is another great option if you want to get some seeds started early, uh, but don't have a proper nursery or greenhouse to do so. Um, our system, we usually just set up a metal shelving unit with multiple shelves zap strap some uh grow lights onto each layer and then plant some seeds yep. and put them underneath and that's actually been really beneficial in fact that is how we still started our tomatoes this year yeah and that was i guess what february 14th 15th that we would have started those the tomatoes this year were let's see February 9th. February 9th. And yeah. then they get to live uh, live in our little cabin. <laughs> for a good staying, month. Staying warm from the wood, wood stove. Yeah, for a month until we were able to then move those trays down to the greenhouse that we were keeping at what temperature at that point in time. We were keeping it above 58. Yeah. But only a portion of that greenhouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we have a partition that we drop. It's basically just some greenhouse plastic so that we don't have to heat the entire greenhouse because yeah. we didn't need to. Yeah, that and it makes saves sense. so much money. And then for us, having that heated greenhouse has been a huge benefit. And of course, there's also there's always pros and cons to everything. So we use the resource of propane to heat our greenhouse in order to produce certain crops and food earlier for our community. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, we're using the those resources to do so yep. and so yeah you, you do have to evaluate for yourself personally whether you're growing for your family or growing on a small scale farm or medium or even a large scale farm because those costs can add up if you're not doing it properly or in the most efficient way yeah and so what we found after a few years of trial is that planting out our tomato starts later so we did it in april this year yeah, April and 20th, actually. That made a huge difference for us in terms of the cost of propane that yep. we had to use to heat that space. Yeah. Yeah, it, it reduced our, our need for propane by like 50%, mm -hmm. actually, compared yeah. to uh, previous years. Because previous years, we, we transplanted early as March 17th. Yeah, we were super gung-ho our first year when we ha got this heater through a grant, actually, through CFAC. And... Yeah, we were like, yeah, we're going to grow the earliest tomatoes in Montana. This is going to be awesome. Yeah. And I mean, it was. People were very excited. We were able to charge, like, we got a high value for that crop because mm -hmm. it was specialty. No one yeah. else or very few other farms had it available. Exactly. 
Um, so that's the perk, but it also costs a lot. Costs more. a lot, and yeah. so this seems to be a good balance this year. Our tomatoes are still pretty far ahead compared to those that are just growing them in a high tunnel yeah. without any heat. And so, like we're we have a lot of fruit, yeah. And some of the cherry varieties are already starting to blush, so you can see that they're they're turning soon. So I imagine for the next couple of weeks we'll start to be able to harvest some tomatoes, which is really awesome for. Yeah. Bitterroot Valley of Montana. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's not about like how much, how much crop or how much revenue you get from a from a crop. It's about how much it costs to, to produce that crop. And what we were finding out, like adjusted for all the time that we spent trellising and all that, like we weren't really making a big profit off of that early those really early season crops yet. Granted, we've had quite a bit of issues with nutrition and that could be a factor as far as the profitability for mm -hmm. much much earlier crops or much more earlier tomatoes like that and so we made the decision this year to plant later and it actually really helped their mm -hmm. growth rate because in that early season you know even with that less light even if you heat it they're still growing slower and so we had this just quick quick growth rate growth rate because we planted a little bit later and I think this is the way forward for us. Yeah, absolutely. And so the other crops that we are able to offer a little bit earlier than most other farms in the area because of this addition of the heat mm -hmm. are summer squash. Mm -hmm. So we've already been harvesting our zucchinis, the yellow and the green, for two, two weeks, plus weeks now at least. And it's great because we have a CSA program that started last week. And it's always fun being able to offer some of those unique items that you just can't find at the farmer's market yet this yep. season. Exactly. And then in addition, we have all of our peppers already transplanted into the greenhouse as well. Yep. And so it's just that little, that little benefit that people can weigh out on a personal scale or for a small farm if uh, that's a road that they want to go down. Definitely. Yeah. You know, and some other drawbacks too, because I... I'm really kind of focusing on on drawbacks or things that cause pain points in farming um, is that you actually increase your risk of poor environmental conditions the earlier you plant out into into greenhouses because the higher humidity, the cooler temps that really favors things like aphids mm -hmm. or various pathogenic infections that can occur in your crops. And so, you know, there definitely is increased risk. And so you just got to weigh out if that's going to be uh enough of a reward for that not only that but also heaters break yes they break they can break quite a bit yeah and then you put yourself at risk in that your crops are relying on that heat yep if you are utilizing that heat to grow mm -hmm. if that is a condition you are creating for the growth of those crops and we've experienced that too where we've had to call on another farm to borrow their torpedo heaters to Make sure our tomatoes stayed alive overnight. When, Barely. Yeah, when last year we had planted them even earlier and our heater pooped out on us. Yeah, it did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, pros and cons. Pros and cons to every method of farming, I'd say. And mm -hmm. it comes down to what you're most interested in, where your passions lie, what you want to be able to produce for the community. And I mean, it's great. There's so much diversity in our valley, too, with what farmers are wanting to produce and how they're producing it. It's pretty cool. It is. Um, and so let's let's talk a little bit about so that we covered 
how to get some earlier harvests really comes down to having that cover, having a place that you can potentially start some seeds indoors, Mm -hmm. supporting your local nurseries that have started the seeds indoors anywhere between February, March, April, so that you can just buy starts and get them out into your garden at the appropriate time. Well, let's talk a little bit about when the best time is to plant some of the warm season crops outdoors in Montana if you don't have that option for any sort of greenhouse cover. Yeah, I mean, it it does depend on the crop. And and some warm weather crops just don't even really produce that well out in the fields in Montana. Like, at least where we live, peppers are really not a great high-value crop for doing outside. I mean, like maybe jalapenos, but, you know, they're not going to at least we haven't experienced bumper crops outside in the field. And with those cool nights come September, when you're ready to start harvesting, they're just not turning Mm -hmm. because it's so cold. So, but you know, for tomatoes, you know, you got to choose the right varieties, you know, don't choose varieties that take 90 plus days to come to maturity because you won't, you'll just have a bunch of green tomatoes and you'll wonder why you don't, you know, have any red ones. But so choose the right variety for sure for these warm weather crops and for tomatoes, I would say generally starting in early June, you know, look at the long range forecast and, and if they are calling for really cool temps, it might just, you might just put it into a slightly larger pot Mm -hmm. and leave it outside if it's going to be, you know, above 50 degrees Fahrenheit. But if it's going to be below that, I would just bring that pot inside at night. Mm -hmm. And that's a great way to really bulk out a tomato before then you finally plant it into the into your garden outside um let's see yeah pepper is not great eggplant are actually somewhat decent i mean we're these we're talking about like tropical semi-tropical plants mm-hmm. so if you are having a difficult time doing this in montana you know don't feel bad about it because these are really hard crops to grow outside even farmers the farmers around here have, have major issues with it. So, mm-hmm. And I mean, a lot of farmers, I don't know if I can say most, but a lot of farmers in the Bitterroot Valley, they grow their nightshades, their peppers, their eggplant, their tomatoes. They grow them under some sort of cover, cover whether it's a caterpillar tunnel or a high tunnel. Yeah. Uh, there's something providing a little ec- extra heat and protection. Almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, winter squash and summer squash, they are warm season crops. And even, you know, cucumbers and melons, those are warm season crops. Those are all in the cucurbit family. Mm-hmm. And those will generally do pretty well out, out out in Montana after after your last frost. But you really, it would behoove you to start those in a nursery or at least in pots so they can get to at least a transplantable size or size up before you transplant them out. Because that'll just give you a better harvest window when it comes to uh, late August and into September. Because certain varieties of of winter squash, for example, they'll take 120 days to come to maturity. Mm -hmm. And so if you're starting them from direct seeding early June, they don't germinate till mid-June. And then all of a sudden, three months later, it's mid-September and your frost hits and you don't have any mature winter squash. So you really got to... That it's a little more challenging, but you really got to just choose the right varieties that are quicker to mature. And hopefully you have at least some space to start them in indoors or at least, you know, in the greenhouse. Yeah. And so if you want to get, if you're super gung-ho and want to get into your garden early spring when that soil feels warm enough to start planting in, some great options are greens, radish, 
hot dry salad, turnips, the things that are tolerant of slightly colder weather and then hold off. See if you can either buy some uh, nightshades at your local nursery or get your seeds started inside and think about transplanting those out, at least for our area uh, in early June. Yep. For the best chance yeah. at success. No guarantee. Because <laughs> there have been frosts in July in, yeah. in the Bitterroot yeah. even. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but there, you know, other warm season crops don't take as much time, like beans, you mm-hmm. know, for example. Those sometimes take between like 55 and 70 days. And so, you know, that's that's a great crop to grow during the summer in Montana. Yeah. They yeah, love absolutely. the heat. They produce great. They will generally not have too many pests and you'll get a good crop before the winter or before fall hits. Yeah. And what about peas? People love peas. What is the best time to direct seed those outdoors? So direct seed outdoors, I would say uh, probably the second week of April because if it's too cold and and too rainy, you're going to have a tough time probably germinating or getting good germination on those. I mean, you can try and but, you know, a lot of them will just mold out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, early, first, second weekend of April. Yeah. And then those are really not great for the fall. You, it was, it'll just be too hot to grow, to start them in, in, in the summer, mid-July mm-hmm. when you would need to, to get a fall harvest out of them. And so peas are really just a spring crop. Yeah. 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 And that's actually, that's, that's a good point to bring up is that not all crops are ready to be planted or enjoy being will will succeed in being planted in spring like versus in fall. june yeah. versus fall so certain things you kind of have to take a little bit of a break from in that heat of the summer because you aren't going to have success with them like jay mentioned earlier about the spinach um spinach you unless you have a nice shady section you're gonna have a really hard time growing it in peak summer yeah. and so typically there will even have a little bit of a gap mm-hmm. between our early summer versus our fall harvest exactly what are some other examples of crops that uh, people might want to consider making sure they grow early enough in the spring and then taking a little break peak summer and trying again in the fall um i mean lettuce heads like you know you can at home gardeners can really just harvest leaves off of it whenever so it's not a huge deal but for farmers it can be a challenge sometimes in peak season um to get a a full size head before it, it bolts or goes to seed i'm trying to think of any others though can you think what of ab- any what about herbs like cilantro oh yeah uh it, it cilantro and dill are definitely great um, springtime crops they grow really well and but like for us we we grow that year not year round but all summer long so oh, okay yeah because like you don't risk it bolting if it's too hot well the it will but we just cut it once right okay. you know by the time september comes around that those that cilantro is just not going to bolt and mm-hmm. so we'll get two or three cuts out of that in september and october before winter hits so okay. yeah it just really depends um you know, basil doesn't like the cold, so don't plant that out in spring. Yeah. <laughs> you won't have any basil. Um, trying to think. So one one example, though, that's kind of the reverse is actually daikon radish. And daikon radish is a great storage radish. It's primarily what farmers um, use for storage radish, almost exclusively. 
And you don't seed those in spring because radish are one of those root crops. Remember when I was talking about like carrots and beets and onions that put out seeds, uh, seed heads in, in spring. And so if you put those seeds out in spring, they're, they're just going to be prone to bolting and you're not going to get a daikon radish out of it or actual storage radish. So those don't get seeded until late July for us. And then they won't bolt by that point when they're starting to size up that root. Mm -hmm. And so you'll be able to get a good, good harvest out of it. Awesome. Napa cabbage is also is in the mustard family. It's not actual cabbage, but we tried this year to do an early season Napa cabbage harvest or um, growth grow. And they, they did go to seed. Yeah, they did. So I think I'm the think I would have to do it even earlier in a greenhouse if we wanted to get a good harvest out right. of it. Yeah. So, but we were just testing, yeah, see if it would work. Yeah, and I think that's a good opportunity to talk a little bit about seed viability and sourcing, mm-hmm. and what people can look for to make sure they're getting seeds that have a good chance of growing. Maybe we can talk a little bit about the places that we get our seeds from and uh, which companies have proved to be more, maybe more beneficial. More for, reliable. Yeah, more viable for what we are doing. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't want to bash on Baker Creek, but, you know, because they, they have a great thing going there. Absolutely. They're saving a lot of seed from becoming... I mean, I don't know if the term is extinct or not, but yeah, unavailable, unavailable, becoming unavailable. And we love a lot of their seeds, like a lot of their flower seeds have been great. They're really unique varieties, Mm -hmm. heirlooms, open pollinated, super cool stuff. Yeah, it's really rare stuff that you just won't find organic seed. And that's why we can use some of their seed for for crops that just literally there's nowhere to find organic, Mm -hmm. you know, Benny Hoshi or whatever. Right. So, um. I wouldn't use them as a commercial. First of all, they don't provide commercial quantities of seed. So they're not really a, a commercial. It's like they're just doing it for like retail consumers as far as like at home gardeners. So uh, we use Johnny's. We use high mowing. And we also actually started to use a lot of adaptive seeds out of, I think they're out of Oregon. I think so. Yeah. And I've actually been very pleased with their germination rates and their seed, their seed viability and vigor. Um, I'm actually like really happy that I I didn't realize that they were around, but they have this mission uh, and maybe we can get a little more detail on them, but they have this mission and they're all open pollinated varieties, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And all certified organic. And certified organic. Yes, exactly. Which is, I, they might be the only completely open pollinated certified organic commercial seed company in the United States. I'm not sure certainly in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. But um, so the difference between open pollinated varieties and then you'll see it on seed packets, F1 hybrids, is that open pollinated varieties have stabilized genetics that allow the seeds to be somewhat consistent or the plants to be somewhat consistent in their growth rate and how they, their morphology, like how they grow and what they look like um, year after year after year. F1 hybrids, so what they, that ha- what happens is they take two different or two distinct um, basically cultivars of um, like a summer squash, for example, and they genetically inbreed them, these two, two disparate, two separate lines of, of plants or um, yeah, lines of plants. And then 
they crossbreed them. And what that is, it's called heterogeneic vigor. And that F1, that first generation, which is the F1, is a hybrid hybrid squash in this example. And they have this incredible growth rate. They're generally pretty healthy. For the most part, they have some level of disease resistance depending on the varieties. And they produce a worthy crop that Mm -hmm. will actually make you money as a farmer. And F1 hybrids are very popular and a lot of farms use them. We use them. In fact, probably upwards of, of 30 to 40% of our seeds are F1 hybrids. And it's just, it's almost like an insurance, like a reliability that we know that this crop has consistent, you know, growth rates and, and crops. Because, you know, in open pollinated varieties, you get a lot of genetic variability or you can. And so sometimes the, the pak choy will not bolt for two weeks before mm-hmm. the other one that's right next to it. And so it's just an insurance to have, yeah, economic viability on the farm. But I would actually prefer to use, if not all, at least most of our varieties as open pollinated because F1 hybrids are really difficult to stabilize the genetics to then save seed. The F2 generation, which is the second generation after your first generation, after you crossbreed those, you'll have a like wide variety of genetics. Like some of the squash won't even produce squash. Some of the squash will be like, you know, oblong or mm-hmm. like round or whatever. Like you'll just get a bunch of different morphology. And it has to do with with basically inbreeding yeah. to crossbreeding, crossbreeding <laughs> them. Yeah. And it's really interesting. So yeah. super. But that's that's basically where we get our seed. They'll put germination rates, mm-hmm. like percentages, and when it was tested uh, on those seed packets. If it isn't on that seed packet, contact that seed supplier directly to get those numbers because mm-hmm. they they have to. I believe they have to have those numbers for a commercial license. I'm not positive, but yeah, you would think so. Yeah, because yeah. if say it's eighty percent seed germination, you need to overseed that yeah. that. Um, uh, that row and buy extra seed and buy extra you're counting for that potential loss exactly but, and that's why adaptive seeds is really cool too because everything that they grow is grown in oregon or the pacific northwest yeah. and so it tends to be more adapted to our particular zone here in the bitterroot yeah. valley yeah especially for our early season because we do have humid i mean it's considered almost a maritime climate here despite these hot dry summers but we get quite humid air in, in spring and fall. So having that seed supplier in the Pacific Northwest that has the similar pest pressure as we do is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So and uh, adaptive seeds, if people want to look further, we'll put the link in the uh, show notes, but it's just adaptiveseeds.com. And they have vegetables, flowers, garlic, shallot, grain, cover crop, herbs, Mm-hmm. All sorts of things. Uh, so. And unique varieties, yeah, actually. Yeah, super which unique is really varieties, nice. which is kind of the point of having only open pollinated yeah. is that you're re, like, you're helping to create and maintain diversity of crops. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's not just for, for uh, what is it, monocropping. And yeah, we want to talk about sustainability, like mm-hmm. this F1 crossing and, and hybridization of plants not only does not it makes it harder for, for farmers to save their own seed, mm-hmm. but it also is high technology. And so um, open pollinated varieties help 
to increase sustainability in our agricultural systems yeah. because if we can have open pollinated varieties that are grown on a wide variety of of um, fields and farms around the country, we're going to have diverse genetics, and that will we don't even know sometimes how how much that will help us down the road. I mean, think about the potato famine in Ireland back what was it in what was when was that in the early 1900s but they basically grew like one or two varieties of potatoes and they had this huge blight and it wiped out the entire crop and they had literally no food same thing happened with bananas so we were only growing one distinct variety of bananas across the entire planet Mm. and i forget what hit it but it completely wiped out the, the... It was like this whole thing, I think, back in the 70s. 1950s. When it was in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And they had to actually create a new variety of b- banana that we still eat today. So... It's just so crazy when yeah. you think about it. <laughs> it is, yeah. So the homogenization <sighs> of genetics of all of our crops can help us, but it also can be our Achilles heel. Mm-hmm. So we need both sides because mm-hmm. I do want F1 hybrids. Right. But I also want resilience and like what if and you know, a solar flare hit or whatever mm-hmm. and wiped out high technology um um uh facilities that produce seed F one hybrids or whatever and I mean it'll do much more than that, but all of a sudden no no farms have even the ability to save seeds mm-hmm. or it'll be much harder and what will happen then? So it'll just increase yeah. sustainability sustainability in our agric- agricultural system. Yeah, for sure. This. Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's always fun too when you're growing an open pollinated variety. Sometimes we do get some super unique diversity, mm-hmm. and it's like, sure, we live in a society where people want their perfectly uniform tomatoes that are all red or the color they're meant to be. But I love the uniqueness that can appear in some of those open pollinated varieties. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it it actually might be a benefit to a farm. Like what if they bred out something that they saw in the field that was kind of unique? Like, like it probably wouldn't happen, but what if there was like a blue pock choy, you know, genetic (laughs) mutation or something and they're like, Ooh, let's save that seed. All of a sudden you could be the only farm with that seed. Yeah. And because it is an open pollinated, not a hybrid variety, you can save your seeds. Yeah. You can seed seeds with, with F1 hybrids, but you're not going to be getting good crops. You're going to have to stabilize the genetics for three, sometimes five generations. So it takes a long time. And you've only got so many generations as a farmer. Yep. 30 in a good career. (laughs) Um, Well, maybe to uh, finish up this episode, we can chat a little bit about what's up and coming in terms of the seasonal crops. What can our customers here in Bitterroot Valley of Montana expect to start seeing at the farmer's market and on the shelves in our storefront in say the next between now and up to four weeks from now heading um, into July. So we'll start to see we, we have zucchini mm-hmm. and then we'll start to see cucumbers and tomatoes. We'll start to see um, uh, peas, um, carrots. We'll start to see garlic scapes. Mm-hmm. Yep. We saw those in the field just today yep. they're starting which mm-hmm. is exciting scape yep. pesto will be on the menu soon yeah so delicious um what else will we see i'm trying to think you as mentioned kohlrabi's like, oh about yeah ready we'll see um, cabbage cauliflower 
We didn't do broccoli this year because it's not a profitable crop. Not working <laughs> well for us. We are drowning in rhubarb right now. So come down, get your rhubarb. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really. We'll, I guess we'll just, we're really heading into the season of surplus mm-hmm. come, or surplus and diversity. <laughs> come July, we'll have uh, many, many varieties mm-hmm. of crops. So Yeah. Just trying to think what else. <laughs> I know. It didn't sound like very much. I swear we're growing a ton. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I'm going to look at our seed list. And things that we'll be able to continue on with that we're already growing will mm. be our radish, our salad turnips. Uh, we tend to grow those right through the season. Mm. Kale, All sorts lettuce. of greens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The kale, the lettuce. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, herbs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, but... Great. And uh, yeah, coming into flower season as well. So all all sorts of things starting to bloom. We had a slight less of a flower disaster than last year. Last year, we were hopeful (laughs) in what we would do, but we currently have about 50 flower planters out on our patio because that's about all we found we had time to do was plant some pots for ourselves mm-hmm. instead of make space in the fields and that's okay too so mm-hmm. uh we'll have a few hanging baskets for sale yeah. at the cafe and farm store and yeah all right and that's that is the uh spring on the farm updates all right well we'll see you next week thanks for listening everyone please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family it really just takes a couple of seconds. You can also leave us a review. We appreciate all forms of feedback. It certainly helps us to keep our egos in check. And if you appreciate our work and want to help us succeed, please consider contributing financially. You can do this by visiting patreon.com backslash the sourdough. That's patreon.com backslash the sourdoe. You can also follow us on Instagram at sourdough.mt.